just have the highest fecundity I've ever seen. So that means that there's just a ton of baby lionfish in the water at one time. And lionfish reach sexual maturity at approximately like one years old. And then once they can spawn, a female can release up to 42,000 eggs every two to three days year round. Sorry. And the lionfish lives up to (laughs) 16. Not only are lionfish populating at extreme rates, but they also do not have natural predators. And predators which could be eating them, such as sharks and groupers, do not recognize them as prey. This is one of the reasons that lionfish have become an enormous problem on the coast of America. We talked to someone, Taylor Tucker, who did her master's dissertation on lionfish numbers and populations in Bermuda. We learn all about how they were caught, how they got there, what do they eat? Why is it such a problem to have lionfish there? What are some of the technological advances people are working on to stop the lionfish crisis? And how this venomous fish has now become a sustainable delicacy all over America. Thank you guys for listening to the Ocean Packing Podcast. Thank you guys for all the support. If you want to help me out, If you want to help me out and continue the work that I'm doing in educating and creating a cleaner, greener earth, then it would mean the world to me if you could become a patron for the Ocean Pancake podcast. You can also head over to oceanpancake.com where you'll find all the information about all these podcast episodes and maybe get yourself a Plastic is the Killer t-shirt as a reminder of what one of the biggest enemies of our planet is, plastic, and how it is up to all of us to make a difference in our lives. Also, just another reminder, I am looking for editors, writers, podcast people, uh, photographers, anyone who is an ocean lover and wants to make a difference for our oceans. Shoot me an email on oceanpancakepodcast at gmail.com. I would love to have a chat with you and see how we can work together to create a better future for our children and our oceans and all the animals which live inside. Every day there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andriskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast. I am so excited to have Taylor Tucker here, who is a marine biologist and world traveler. Today, we're going to be talking about lionfish. Welcome to the podcast, Taylor. Thanks. Excited to be here. What was the first time you kind of fell in love with the ocean, or how did you start on your journey towards ocean conservation? Well, I think that I've been falling in love with the ocean for a very long time, and I had a lot of opportunities growing up in Southern California to go out and experience the ocean, whether I was at the beach 
or I went to the aquarium a lot with my parents. And I have this memory of going to the bookshop with my dad. I think I was like four. And the first book that I picked out was all about sharks. And it was like this 500 page picture book. And I just remember reading it all the time when I was growing up and being so intrigued by it. And then as I got older, I had the opportunity to go on different family trips where we would go to Hawaii and go snorkeling with the turtles, or we went to Belize and I got to swim with the Goliath groupers, and we got a chance to go to the Galapagos and I saw hammerheads. Um, so those were all kind of pushing me towards discovering more of like what the ocean was like. And I think my first time that I really realized how much I loved it though was when I started scuba diving and I was like 14 years old in the British Virgin Islands and it really opened up my eyes because I was seeing the ocean from the same depth as the animals around me and I think my love of conservation came through seeing those animals and recognizing the beauty and then watching documentaries like shark water where I was immediately drawn to help those animals and um, then my first work with ocean conservation was in high school where I traveled to Belize and we helped tag sharks and uh, we tracked their movement to determine the boundaries of a marine protected area. And I kind of realized that I could only like not love or I could love the ocean and I could also do something to help protect it. Oh, that's beautiful. And working with sharks is one of your first like field excursions. That must have been amazing. What was that like? Like, yeah, it was great. I um I got it as a high school graduation present and I was working with Earthwatch. So we went down to this small island. We were basically the only ones on it. We were a group of eight people and we were helping a PhD researcher and we got to go out and drop these cameras and to be surrounded by these big nurse sharks and reef sharks. It was such a cool opportunity to just be handling them and working with them. And I was like, wow, this is so awesome. I could definitely see my future as this. How did you tag the sharks? Do you have to catch them? Is that through like fishing or nets or like what's the process there? Yeah, so we set up long lines and we would leave them for about an hour mm -hmm. and then we would come back and go down them, go down the line of um, hooks. And then once we had the shark, um, my job at first was actually tail roping them. So we would have a loop um, on a line at the end and I would loop their tail and someone would be at the front, usually someone who was staff and not just, you know, a high school volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> and then someone would lean over the side of the boat. We would take samples and we would insert a tag um, right up next to their dorsal fin. Were any like exhausted or tired by the time you put, pulled them up to the point where you had to get them swimming again? Or were they all pretty lively? Yeah, they were all pretty lively. I would say that since we didn't wait very long between when we set out the lines and got back, they were all in really good shape. And um, they all swam away pretty quickly. It was actually more scary, like putting the tail rope on and seeing how like alive they really were. <laughs> yeah, because I know in, in Australia, we have the like shark culling programs and they leave the the hooks out there baited for it around three days. So by that point, the sharks are truly exhausted. But I guess after an hour, the work being done in Australia is, you know, research versus killing. So good to know that it's just quick in and out uh, for the sharks to be tagged so we can. Yeah, definitely very harmless. And yeah, we also drop these um, bruvs, which are 
baited remote underwater video cameras. Mm -hmm. And so we were dropping those and we could see the sharks, you know, not only tracking their movements, but also dropping them at sites and seeing um, how they were at depth and how frequent we were seeing them. So we kind of had like two different methods to help us determine where the marine protected area would be. And how did you kind of, um, was it motion censored, the, the cameras underwater, or did you just have to watch the footage and see how many sharks showed up? Yeah, it was definitely a lot of watching the footage and just sitting there for four hours, and then all <laughs> of a sudden a shark would pop into the screen, and you're like, oh my goodness, that's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> definitely. A lot of fish, like, poking their head into the camera and being like, I wonder what this is. Yeah, it's pretty cute. I left my GoPro down um, when I was snorkeling one day and all these fish just came up to it and were trying to investigate. And they're quite curious whenever <laughs> something new lands in the environment. So you mentioned that you did your master's thesis when in Bermuda. So can you share what it was about? Yeah, so as I was growing up, um, I did a lot of diving in the Caribbean and I saw lionfish a lot. and I kind of noticed that their population levels were increasing over time. So when I would go diving and I was 15 years old, I would see one or two lionfish per dive. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 22, I'd go diving and there was like 24 lionfish per dive. So oh, they were wow. the first thing that popped into my mind um, during my master's thesis. And when I was thinking about what work I would want to do, I kind of wanted to relate it to something that I had noticed in the ocean growing up. And so it just kind of fell into my lap that I started working with lionfish and that I picked that as my topic. And I was able to find a female mentor who was also working on lionfish. And I think that was really important for me. So I started working at the Bermuda Institute of Ocean Science and in the coral reef ecology lab we started to work on lionfish and see how their impact would be on prey fish, which is a huge hotspot for research right now. And I think a lot of people really want to know how it's affecting the fish because we've been seeing so many negative reports from so many different countries. And if we can understand it, then we can take you know the measures to protect these animals in our environment. What makes lionfish so dangerous or how do you classify invasive species? Invasive species, they're firstly they're not native to the area and they're also causing some sort of ecological harm. So lionfish are just exponentially increasing in their environment and they were also the first marine fish introduction into the Atlantic from the Indo-Pacific. So they were the first kind of marine fish invader in this environment and since the fish aren't recognizing them as a threat since they're so new to the environment they didn't know to have that fear response to lionfish and so instead of avoiding them like a predator they just swim right up to them and have no idea mm -hmm. and so then lionfish are able to kind of take advantage of that and since they're such generalist predators they're consuming around 41 species of fish all over across the reef and they don't really have that mental sense to be like okay I'm full maybe I should stop they kind of just keep going and going and going and they have actually the ability to reduce almost 85 percent of the fish on a reef oh wow so they're kind of like Labradors in that sense yeah yeah exactly how do we know and, they um, were one of the first like um 
species which showed up from the Indo-Pacific? Were they introduced? Did someone bring them over or was it kind of a natural migration or what happened? Yeah, so they were brought over um, in the marine fish trade for the aquariums. And since they're such a striking fish and they have this crazy morphology where they have these venomous spines and they're really flashy and they have all these massive fleshy appendages and stripes. They're such a beautiful fish to look at and people really wanted them in their aquariums. So they were being brought over from the Indo-Pacific and they were all across the United States. And then around 1985, one of the aquariums in Florida, they, um, I think some sort of like natural disaster happened or something like that. And they got accidentally released into the wild. And from there, the invasion kind of took over. And now they're found all the way up to Rhode Island and all the way down towards Southern Brazil and in nations all across the Caribbean. But Bermuda was really rare in the sense that it was the very first country outside of the United States to be affected by the lionfish invasion. So they started noticing them in around 2001. And I think someone found one in a tide pool and they brought it into this exhibition at the Bermuda Aquarium. And someone was like, you know, that fish doesn't really look familiar here. And they were like, oh yeah, I just found it down at the tide pool. And, you know, they kind of realized, oh, yikes, you know, we now have an invasive species in our waters. So I think people after that started seeing them a lot more along the reefs. Mm -hmm. What did you guys do as part of your master's program? Did you just count how many there were or what kind of measures uh, are being taken to kind of stop the invasion of them? Yeah, so they did a reset or they did a baseline survey for lionfish and prefish in 2014. And they had a researcher come in and they did prefish surveys. So basically, they picked 14 sites around Bermuda along the southern shore and the northern shore, um, coral reef tracks. And they would set up four to six different prey fish transects. So that means that they're taking a measuring tape and they're going out 30 meters and they're counting every single fish um, and doing it size. So like 10 centimeters or 15 centimeters. And then they're writing down the species name and how many there are in each size class. So kind of getting a baseline of what kind of fish are in the area and how many do we have. And then at each of the same sites, they would go and they would do a lionfish quadrat. So it'd be 10 meters by 25 meters. And a diver basically swims in a zigzag pattern with a spear and counts down um, all of the lionfish that they're seeing in the area. And then they spear them and put them in a lionfish containment unit, which is basically just like a little bucket and where they can't get out. And then we would bring them back to the lab. And once we have them there, we cut them open and we would see if they were male or female and what reproductive stage they were at if they were a female. And we'd also take measurements like size and their length. And then we would actually then cut up the lionfish in fillets and we would sell it out to the commercial markets. Oh, so wow. once they had done this baseline survey, I yeah, I kind of came in and I did the reassessment. So they were noticing that lionfish were 
very heavily populated along the southern shore of Bermuda, but they weren't really seeing them along the northern shore and no one really knows why. And so I came in and I resurveyed five years later all the northern shore sites to see if they had taken over because lionfish are notorious for being able to invade new environments and it didn't make any sense that we weren't seeing them. So we went out and we still weren't finding them in as high of densities as the southern shore, but we took our measurements at 30 feet, 60 feet, 100 feet, and 200 feet, and we noticed that lionfish were heavily invading areas at around 200 feet and um, were kind of found around 100 feet, but almost not present at all in the shallow waters. Interesting. Do you have any idea why? Uh, I think that it has something to do with maybe underwater upwelling. And so those mesophotic coral ecosystems, I think they're getting a lot of nutrients brought up from the bottom and it's making that ecosystem level a lot more productive. And we found that the fish biomass was higher at around 200 feet than it at 100 or 60 or 30. And so I think that they're following where their prey sources are. Mm -hmm. And since they're already eating so much at that level, I don't, it's a, just a personal opinion, but I don't think they're coming up to the shallows because they don't really need to. They have all their food down at depth. Because I've seen a lot of lionfish at around 20 meters, which I think is like, 70 feet I want to say 80 feet maybe yeah Ooh, I'm not good at the conversions <laughs> and um, I haven't actually seen that many at greater depths um, in in the Indian Ocean though where they're meant to be so I'm just curious in terms of have you seen like them just really living at this whole range of depths do you know much about where they usually live in like their home in their home seas and home oceans yeah, I I don't know as much about them in their home ocean, but I do know that in their invaded range, there actually are more of them in the invaded range than there are in their home range. And so I think that they may be occupying a larger um, range of depth. And it's I think it's actually more common in Bermuda for them to be found at these deeper depths because I've definitely seen them in shallower areas and in other places in the Caribbean, like St. Lucia or the British Virgin Islands. But there have been papers that have come out um, saying that they can be found as deep as like 300 meters. And so there definitely are down there, but I think that not a lot of technical divers are in the water as much as there are just the shallow water divers that are out there documenting where they're seeing them. True, that makes sense. Um, yeah. I know, like, one of my best friends lives in Bermuda now for a couple of years, and she's constantly posting on Facebook, hi, Robin, if you're listening, about um, them, like, shooting lionfish or spearing lionfish while they're guiding tourists, as well as just on their free days. And there's even, like, a, a yearly lionfish competition. You, you know about that one? Yeah, so they have their annual lionfish competition and they have a lot of really cool um, competition. So they'll say, you know, go out and spirit the largest individual and then go out and spirit the smallest individual. Mm -hmm. And they'll have everyone kind of out in the water doing that. And I know they do that um, a lot in Florida too and some other places in the Caribbean. So that's like a really exciting event to kind of bring everyone together 
to help the ocean in a really fun way. And scuba diving operations um, are playing a, such a huge role in helping to decrease the amount of lionfish in the area because you can't really catch a lionfish through rod and reel or long lining usually. And so you have to rely on scuba diving to use spear fishing as a method. And if you can stay down at that depth for longer, then you're obviously going to kill more at that time. Uh, what would happen if the populations were not controlled and people weren't spearfishing them? I think that lionfish have the ability to exponentially grow their population. And so having these control efforts to decrease the amount of lionfish is so important because I think that we would just see a complete takeover of lionfish in an area and then we could risk losing you know some of our really important commercial fish species and also other fish species that just play a really integral part of just balancing the ecosystem. Yeah I can see how that could happen if they're just breeding. What have you found to be like one of the most surprising and interesting facts about the lionfish? So just like you said, if they're reproducing all the time, um, there's obviously going to be more and more lionfish. And I think the most surprising fact to me that I learned about lionfish is that they just have the highest fecundity I've ever seen. So that means that there's just a ton of baby lionfish in the water at one time. And lionfish reach sexual maturity at approximately like one years old. And then once they can spawn, a female can release up to 42,000 eggs every two to three days year round. Sorry. And the what? lionfish lives up to 16 years. Yeah. Can you just repeat that? Yeah, it's I, crazy. I think I zoned out a little bit. How many eggs? So they release up to 42,000 eggs every two to three days year round. That's insane. And how many of those eggs statistically like reach, you know, maturity or at least big enough to start eating the reef? <laughs> I'm not really exactly sure what the ratio is, but I do know that a lionfish can live up to 16 years old. So that's more than 76 million eggs produced in their lifetime. So I'm not sure how many are surviving, but there's definitely a lot of opportunities for life. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea. And I guess since they don't have any natural predators, that's that's one of the biggest issues is nothing is eating them. Are are lionfish cannibalistic? Um, I think that they are, but not not widely. I think that they could if there wasn't a lot of other fish available to them, but I don't think that's like a very common thing for a lionfish to go out and eat another lionfish. Um, they're mostly preying on smaller fish like blue-headed wrasses or um, creole fish and other smaller species like that that are around 10 to 15 centimeters. And uh, you were saying that even from your like marine biology um, masters, you guys were selling the fillets to commercial operators. Has the commercial aspect of like cooking and selling lionfish really increased in the past few years? Yeah, I think so. Even in the United States, Whole Foods has started selling lionfish, which is really exciting. And I think that there's this preconceived notion that since lionfish are a venomous fish, that it's dangerous to eat them. And I think that's been kind of harmful to our effort to promote lionfish as, you know, a sustainable seafood choice. 
but I guess I just want to put it out there that venomous, um, it's just in their spines. And once you cut them off, it's totally okay to eat. It's actually one of the best tasting fish, in my opinion. And uh, the reef organization just came out with a lionfish cookbook and they have like over 160 recipes of how to cook lionfish. And I know that they've been having different chef tasting events. So they're definitely putting the word out there. And I think the hardest thing for making it a commercial option is that, you know, since you have to get them through spearfishing, it's hard to get really large, reliable volumes mm -hmm. of lionfish at a time. But I just, um, well, I got the opportunity to go out with this company called the Atlantic Lion Share. And they developed this remote operated vehicle and it has a spear attached to it and it can swim down to around 300 meters over these deep coral reefs. And it kind of works like a video game. So I got to operate it and it has this front facing camera and you can detect a lionfish through the camera. And then you can press a button and it activates a spear and we'll actually go out, spear the lionfish, and then vacuum it into a cage that can hold up to 150 individuals. And I think that this new ocean technology is definitely part of the innovative thinking that we need to start using to help make a really big change in the lionfish densities, especially at the deeper depths. Yeah, because divers can't reach the deeper depths consistently, and dive organizations probably primarily go to the same few dive sites. So there's going to be a lot of the reefs which yeah. aren't being um, controlled. That's very cool. Definitely. So you actually got to play this video game type of thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really cool. It was a father and son that started this company. And um, they were out in Bermuda and we got invited to go out with them. And it's kind of this like little remote controller. And you're looking at all these different screens. And you're like, okay, let's try and find the lionfish. And um it was really exciting. And then once we, we caught around 50 individuals and we brought them back up on board and we got to take them out of the cage. And we actually took fin clips of all of the lionfish and took all of their like length and weight measurements and sexes. And um, then we're going to use those fin clips in a study to determine the amount of genetic variability there is in the population. So since there's two species of lionfish, there's Taroas volatans and Taroas miles that mm -hmm. have invaded this range. It's not really known whether one is more present than the other, and there's definitely hypotheses, but I think it'll be really interesting to see what the ratio is in Bermuda. Is it efficient? Like, it, that seems like a pretty expensive technology to get lionfish. I, I'm guessing there might be some subsidies or things to like support projects like this? Yeah, it's definitely expensive. And I think that they've put a lot into it themselves because they know that lionfish are going to be such a forward thinking resource. But I know that there's other companies, I can't remember the name of it right now, but one had developed these robots that I think they're selling for around $100 to $200. And it's like your own personal robot that you can send down. It will catch like 20 lionfish and like bring it back up to you. So I know that some people are starting to develop more affordable products to sell to the public. That's very cool. You have to make sure to send me the links to those because I'm curious to check those out. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
That is fascinating, though. I had no idea in terms of their reproduction and just what is actually happening in Bermuda and in the United States, because where I dive, lionfish are very much part of the healthy ecosystem. Um, but yeah, they are pretty ferocious predators. And I can imagine unless you have special you know, adaptations to eat an extremely venomous fish um, and you don't have hands to cut off the <laughs> spines, then um, yeah. they could easily take over the whole area. Because I think here it's mostly groupers which eat them. Uh, do, you, do you know what eats them? Yeah, groupers and sharks. Um, and, you know, people say, well, we have groupers and sharks in the Caribbean. Why aren't they eating them? And I think it's, you know, it's the evolutionary time scale. So they're not going to see a lionfish and be like, oh, hey, that's a fish that I want to eat. And um, it's actually interesting, though, if you spear a lionfish, then a shark can sometimes like come up and grab it off of your spear. And you're just like, OK, well, I just got that. And you could have had it all day long. <laughs> um, but then they'll kind of swim away with it. So I think that they do eat them, but they're just not recognizing them as a prey source when they swim past them on the reef. Yeah, potentially uh, now that divers are feeding them to sharks and groupers more, which is something I witnessed as well when I was diving in the Bahamas, uh, potentially we can expect to see some sharks learning. But um, I guess that's, <laughs> you know, that's long term thinking. And for now, these robots really seem like a cool, cool option. Yeah, I think we have a lot of advancement in ocean technology that will you know, play a big part in making a change in, in terms of invasive species. So it's really exciting to be a part of it and see it all coming to life. So I always end the podcast by asking everyone to share one piece of advice um, for people who want to help the oceans and our planet. What would kind of be your piece of wisdom to share with everyone? I would say that there's not just one, you know, thing that you can go out and do or one path that you have to take. And my advice would be to go and have your own personal experience with the ocean that really connects you to this magical underwater world. And I know that mine is when I look underwater and I see everything and it's so beautiful and I see that it's so rare that it's, it's really worth protecting. And I think once you build that personal connection to the ocean, you have purpose doing you know, small things in your daily life or spreading the world, the word, or, you know, even building a career helping the ocean and having that connection makes it really easy to follow through with things like going out and respecting the habitat when you're visiting or making informed seafood choices or reducing your plastic use um, because you have that personal motivation. Where could people learn more about sustainable seafood? I did just do an episode about how um, sustainable seafood is mostly a myth, but I feel like um, spearing lionfish and eating them is potentially one of the only <laughs> um, kind of 100% sustainable <laughs> sources. But what are some other things that um, yeah. are found to be sustainable? Yeah, so I really look towards the Monterey Bay Aquarium and growing up in California and going to school in Northern California, um, they've developed this awesome 
website and I think it's also an app too where you can go and you can look at the different fish that they're deeming as sustainable and where they're finding those fish and what their population levels are like or toxin levels and I use it as a resource when picking out seafood and uh, I also work in the lab at Moat Marine Lab here in Florida and we do electronic monitoring so I'm actually reviewing footage from fishing boats you know in the Gulf of Mexico and seeing how they're sustainably fishing and I go out and I talk to the fishermen in the area where I live and it's just been really interesting to you know hear their take and seeing what's happening on the boats and learning more about sustainability through working as a marine biologist. What have been some of the big you know takeaways that fishermen have shared with you? Yeah, I would say that in terms of bycatch, I think it really depends on what type of fishing gear you're using and, you know, what area you're fishing in. Because I've noticed that a lot of these fishermen, they really do care about making their seafood sustainable while also trying to live a life and support their family. And I think they've shared that they really do have that personal motivation to be helping the ocean because they recognize that it's you know, a resource that they really need to have to continue their job. And that, you know, they're, I, sorry, one sec. They've also been saying that they are seeing the fish and they notice when the fish levels are decreasing or increasing. So that makes them want to comply with the federal, with the federal regulations. That's good to know that um, there are definitely fishermen out there who care and, you know, who are working towards sustainability. I have heard some absolutely horrific reports, though, so <laughs> I think. Yeah, I think there's definitely sides. two sides. To, <laughs> yeah, two sides to every story and, um, you know, different fishermen all across the world, you know, have different viewpoints. But proud to say, it seems like things are going well here in Florida. <laughs> well, that's that's good to know. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, I learned so much about lionfish and yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back over to Bermuda <laughs> to, to dive some more and to see what's happening over there. Yeah, the reefs are really beautiful and super healthy. So it was really exciting to see so much live coral and so many awesome fish swimming around. It's such a beautiful, special place. So you definitely have to get there soon. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thank you once again, Taylor Tucker, for joining me today. I had no idea how fast lionfish can reproduce and that there are these amazing robots which they are now using to cull the lionfish populations. As always, I also want to thank Graham Mose for allowing me to use his amazing music in this podcast. Check him out, Graham Moe's Music or Fat Picnic. If you live in Brisbane, Australia, you can go see him live. It's definitely worth it. Otherwise, don't forget to check out all the information on Ocean Pancake Podcast, uh, which you can find on Facebook, website, and send me an email, oceanpancakepodcast at gmail.com, uh, if you are wanting to collaborate and work together for the future of our planet. I'll talk to you guys next time.